Check, check. All right, find your seats. So let's pick up uh, where we left off before the break and hear some of what uh, emerged in your conversations at your tables. We'll run the mics around and it'll take 10 minutes or so to hear some of the ideas. And, and let's do this. Um, I think often we're good at critiquing. We're not as good at creating because it's a lot harder to create. <laughs> so let's pair, at a minimum, pair any Answer the first question you may have from your table. Give us at least one creative thing you thought could be done in Christian communities, uh, something we could add or create. So who wants to, who had an especially interesting thing? Yes, right here in front. Julie, you can hang on. Uh, the mic is on its way. One of the things that we thought was uh, underlying this is the fact that it highlights only the one day of the week for Christian worship. Uh, and uh, thinking of the church as only that event and not the people that make up the uh -huh. church. So in encouraging the community to be together gives more opportunities for the stories of what's happening the other six days of work to be shared. And one of the ideas that was actually already done in one of the groups that uh, Pastor Jim right across here um, was in was taking time for each of the people in the group over uh, several months to share how they're engaging in God's work at their work. And yep. as they shared the stories, they would also pray for each other. They would pray for what God was doing at their work. And uh, that gave them a greater sense of, of how everyone was engaging in God's work all yes. week long. Simply including in what we ask people to uh, share of their lives with each other, what is happening in the, if they have a paid job in their workplace. It's interesting how naturally we do this with family, with the work of creating and sustaining a home. We very naturally ask, how are, you know, how's your family? But it's amazing how uh, that there's this black box of the paid workday that often is minimally talked about or talked about in very superficial ways, making room for people to share in much more depth. Here's what I'm finding fulfilling. Here's what I'm finding difficult. Here's how you can pray for me in my work. Be a huge step. I have the microphone and I'm going to hang on to it for a minute because yes. I was at a church a couple of weeks ago where they brought a young boy up to the front and talked about what his mission or what his kingdom work was like in school and then prayed and blessed that little boy in his schoolwork. Wow. Okay, Jeff? Awesome. Awesome. Uh, we, we just had the idea of a practice where uh, it would be an annual event or semi annual event where people who graduate from high school or graduate from college are recognized formally and then prayed over and sent forth yes. as going into the workplace. Fantastic. The um, campus ministries at, at Harvard for the graduate students at the end of the school year do something they call, they do a worship service in Harvard's Memorial Church called Ordination to Daily Work. Uh, so. I think there's good reasons we ordain specifically for certain kinds of leadership in the church, but this takes that basic idea of consecration and setting apart, but takes these folks who have done pro professional preparation and says, now you're entering in, just like you know, a pastor might graduate from seminary and then be ordained in a new way to their leadership, ordains them to the work they're going to do in their professions. Why not? And do that for students at every big milestone. Not just celebrate what's happened, but commission them for what's going to happen next. There had to be more ideas than that. <laughs> yes. Very simply, a congregational prayer every week um, where the elders spend uh, quite a bit of time at our church um, praying, and um, they uh. don't just pray for illnesses and spiritual type stuff but um, will pray for um, people by their vocation and in their vocation and what they're doing throughout the week very specifically they always keep it in in uh, it's really a mindset yes. um, kind of a, a um, training of sorts but but um, praying for the vocations of the people yes and I think it's completely natural that we hold those who are ill or in various ways in extremity before the prayers of the congregation, but why not 
hold those who are looking for employment uh, before in, up in prayer and naming. I mean, uh, you know, it's interesting how much shame attaches to being unemployed. Uh, but in other cultures, a lot of shame attaches to be ill, and you don't speak of those who are ill, especially those who may have congenital, you know, things like my niece would be, that would never be mentioned, but you bring that into the circle of the community because you care. Why wouldn't we create the kind of communities where we actually name this very dehumanizing condition of not being able to find work to fulfill your calling to provide for your family and to do your image-bearing work in the world, you know, along with praying for those who are in flourishing seasons of their work and life. Yeah. Uh, where's the next mic? Church work doesn't come naturally to everyone, and sometimes the committee work uh, doesn't appeal to those who are in different disciplines, whether that's ah. the sciences, the arts, or what have you. But our churches could give a position to those who have expertise in science, arts, ah. social work, and, and so forth, so that when issues arise in our society, as often they do, huh. these people can be called upon to, to give some workshops, some enlightenment to the congregation from you know, a godly perspective about how it's impacting their work and how the, the church can function and articulate you know, Christ in that issue. Yes, fantastic. My wife was just asked to speak to the high school youth group about science and how she understands her work as a scientist, how that connects with their faith, and um, that's why wouldn't you ask any number of people in the congregation to share? I mean, every, every youth is, you know, imagining what they might grow up to be, if nothing else, and that's a great opportunity for that. Yes? Um, I get to work with high school students, and one of the things I most enjoyed um, alongside opening up the Bible is opening up textbooks with them and asking them to teach me what are the things that you're what are the things that you're learning huh. so that we can draw connections to wow. this larger order of God has created this all and helping them see and appreciate um, the complexity and the order that God has spoken and to see them, you know, enjoy sharing and, and, and showing how it goes beyond just, you know, just a Sunday morning or something. God is involved in every place of creation. And then, um, you know, if we're going to be wanting to open scripture with them, we better be willing to open up the textbooks and draw those Wow, so. that's awesome. You know, my 15-year-old daughter is taking biology this past semester, and it has been an experience of worship for her. Like, she comes home just amazed. She's in a public school taking, you know, sophomore biology, and she comes home many days just amazed at the intricacy and beauty of life. And there's no room for that to be expressed in her classroom, realistically, given the constraints of public school education. But it's very rare that in the church that kind of expression of delight in what she's learning and the beauty of God's creation would be welcome. You know, she might hear about biology as a threat, you know, and, and while they teach things in biology texts we don't believe, but would she ever hear? That's such a natural response, uh, especially to studying science. Yeah. Yes? Um, many times in Christianity we talk about doing blessings. Yes. And we do these ordination events in the church uh, in the church structure, geographically, we have them in the church building, the congregation's yeah. um, property. How can we think about taking Christianity's blessing geographically out into wow. the workplace? We usually do house blessings often yeah. in Christianity, but how often do we do work blessings wow. or workplace blessings? Wow. Where we actually go into the workplace and the work world to do blessings. Wow. That's... That is such a great idea, and of course, I immediately think of all the ways that, that would be really hard to pull off. <laughs> like, what you know, in a modern, secular, kind of pluralistic workplace, would you sneak in and like make little crosses on every cubicle and not let anyone know? I don't know. Uh, but I no, but I love the idea, and I think we should push. And you know, the I, the thing that came to mind for me is this thing. It was a big deal for a while, and I see it in one way as such a missed opportunity, which was this way of gathering young people that was called "See You at the Pole." And it was this way of Christian students in public schools identifying as Christians, praying for their school, which is great. But my sense of those events is that they were animated by a, a, a kind of us versus them cultural imagination in which this was to strengthen the kind of somewhat sometimes beleaguered Christian community, empower them for certain kinds of witness. I don't know how many times at CU at the poll we prayed for the flourishing of the educational mission of that school and students' part in it. I just, 
I'm not sure that happened in that way. And I just think about that as, an, as a moment that could have been presented as a blessing of the school, but at least was often perceived as Christians kind of gathering to complain to God about their secular school and ask him to fix it. And that's a very different posture. Maybe I'm caricaturing it, but I just wonder if we missed an opportunity for a geographically based, legitimate kind of blessing that could have happened. Yeah. So it's kind of piggyback on this, but in some sense of um, encouraging and empowering our Christians to have fellowship at their work and their study place. Yes. Um, you know, I'm not a pastor, but I actually, when I work, we've got several places when we started such kind of fellowships. It transformed not only the spiritual life of the people who are working, but actually their view of work. Wow. All of a sudden, that their work, that those five days, became almost a place of ministry. Yes. Uh, it empowered them quite a bit. I find that at churches, we don't do that as much, because whether it's out of convenience or out of safety, we don't know what they're going to be exposed to in yeah. terms of the spiritual fellowship in the workplace, so let's avoid it altogether. <laughs> but it's very surprising when you look at actually from the youth context when they're on, on campus, they found very empowered. And yeah. then all of a sudden, their whole study week of the five days becomes a ministry. Um, so it's not only a spiritual enhancement, but it's actually a work-related and, and, and a vocation-related change. That's great. Maybe one or two more, if, if there are one or two more things that came up at your table that you thought, that was really, really good. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> kind of the first one, and me being younger, I, I heard this a lot growing up, but the, the language of Christian and secular. Yes. Um, maybe I was out for like the first couple of minutes, so maybe somebody already talked about it. I don't know. <laughs> no, um, no, no. But, but there's the idea of I have, because I'm a pastor, I have a Christian job. Um, or you work at a women's shelter that's a Christian ministry, but you are a teacher or you are, you know, a CEO and you work in the secular world. And I think we've, we've driven, you know, even with Christian secular music where we've driven that, that line between there and secular means bad, Christian means good. And so yes. if you work a secular job, um, yes. all of a sudden your, your workplace becomes less than mine. And, and so... I think removing the division between that somehow and starting to embrace that, it's just that there are probably more Christians at my job than your job, but it doesn't make my job better than <laughs> yours. Um, <laughs> but there's, there's just more opportunity, which is exciting for me. There's more opportunity at your job than there is mine. So, Wow. Um, I do think if we could just, at least for a generation, excise that binary, Christian and secular, from our vocabulary and just force ourselves to find other ways to talk about the realities to which they refer. They refer to real things. But it leads to this over-easy uh, binary division of the world that I, it's, I don't think it's the kind of structuring that leads to abundance. I think it leads to self-deception, actually. Um, and uh, it, it leads us to miss the ways in which these worlds interact in, in all sorts of ways. Um, the, the way I would suggest, one way I think about it is... I think it's too narrow to talk about secular work or Christian work. I think those are both quite reductionistic. But what if we talked about image bearing as the fundamental category of human work? Partly because that gives me common ground with my neighbor who may or may not share my faith or my understanding of how the world is put together. But I believe, at least, they are still made in the image of God. And to the extent that they're bringing order and abundance into the world, they're bearing the image of God. Um, and if I can see my neighbor as a fellow image bearer, even though they may not be a Christian, not just as a secular, is there, any, is there actually any secular person? There's no person who hasn't felt a sense of wonder and awe at the world, who doesn't involuntarily cry out to God in times of need. I mean, there's, there, it takes a huge effort of the will to become a secular person. We, we have almost no secular people around us. We do have a lot of people who are alienated from the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and don't know the love and fellowship of the Holy Spirit, but they are fellow image bearers, and the work we do with them is image bearing work. So we got to come up with better language. This will have to be the last contribution for this I think part. just to piggyback off that comment is I think sometimes we devalue work in the types of jobs we talk about yes. and, and the examples we use because it's all, a lot of times I, need, I find out myself of I'm preaching or I'm praying. It's, we're talking about the teachers and the business leaders, and we very rarely talk about the blue-collar job, like yes. you know, blue janitors and waitresses and whatever those other. We tend to kind of pick a, a category of roles and highlight those. Yes. And hard and have it harder. And I know this summer I worked. I did an internship at a 
um, uh, care, care facility and talking to a lot of people there who loved to talk about their job when they were engineers and I had a gentleman who had spent most of his life as a janitor and trying to help him think about the purpose his job had for 50 years at a local high school as a janitor ah. and he found that very, he didn't want to talk about it and ah. it found it very hard to kind of talk with him about what is it, um, how does his job have purpose and what and that wow. role he played. Yes. So now we're, verge, we're venturing into where I want to spend the next little while, which is um, what about the kinds of work that are, are not valued, or perhaps are there kinds of work that actually somehow are a distortion or miss out on what human beings are meant to be? Uh, I don't think janitorial work is that way. Let, just uh, for the sake, hey, I came all this way. I'm just going to throw something at you that I don't have time to explain. But uh, why not? Just for the fun of it. You, you made me think of this thing I was playing with as I got ready for today, and I don't have time to go through all of it, but if human work operates on two axes, it's a little different kind of chart from the ones that I showed earlier and we'll show you in just a moment, where it's both material and symbolic, that is what, what we make of the world both involves making stuff and making sense, and it both involves creating and cultivating, it involves innovation on the left side and preservation and care of what's good on the right you get really different kinds of work. So going you know, roughly around, starting at the upper left, when, when your work is primarily about material creation, you're in the world of invention, inventing you know, new technologies or whatever, new stuff that does, configures the world in new ways. You can also do symbolic invention or creation. Uh, so you're creating in the symbolic realm, which would be like a novelist, would be someone who creates something that doesn't have a lot of material form, but operates very profoundly creatively in the symbolic realm. Then you can cultivate in the symbolic realm, which is where you're, you're inducting other people into the symbolic world of a culture and giving them access to language and other things. And then, up and to the right, is cultivating the material world, which is plumbing. And honestly, I would want to say, of these four corners, which of them am I most glad is in the world? And I would say plumbing has a lot to recommend it, right? Now, actually, I want a world that has all of these, but I'm really glad there are people who prim their primary work is not to be creative. So my plumber, uh, when he comes over, I don't really want him to say, you know, I'm a creative plumber. In fact, I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of a postmodern plumber. I'm, I'm reimagining, I'm an emerging plumber, actually, and I'm reimagining, like, no, 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 that is not what I want from my plumber. Like, I think plumbing is already pretty good. I want him to keep it good, which is what cultivating is. And his work is primarily material. It's, there's not a lot of symbolic analysis. Now, what happens in our postmodern economy is symbolic analysis becomes very highly valued and very highly rewarded. Although I will say my plumber is highly rewarded. $225 to fix a faucet. I'm like, I, wanna, I want your job. But he, he, he does OK. But there's, of course, reasons of monopoly and the trades and racism in that, too. So I don't want to get into why plumbers make so much money. Uh, but I just did, and now you're very confused, and you're going to be distracted for the rest of the day. Darn it. Why did I even say that? It's complicated. Why the trades are highly rewarded, uh, it's complicated. But the trades, whatever their uh, financial benefits, are dignified occupations because they involve this fundamental human calling to cultivation, till the earth and keep it. This is why farming is a human calling. Uh, why nurturing and caring for what's already there, and they're mostly material rather than symbolic. We live in a time that privileges the symbolic and devalues the material, but none of us actually want to live in a world in which people don't do this highly dignified work. Um, and, and the work, and then the other thing is, all work, in fact, has elements of creativity. My plumber, in fact, does have to engage even the very traditional systems of plumbing in my home, very simple systems, in imaginative ways to solve problems, and that's why I hire him, because I can't engage with the same level of knowledge and imagination he can. And even the fiction writer has to actually uh, produce something material to make a difference. Even if it's transmitted electronically, it shows up in, in the material world. So we all are constantly working on both of these axes. That's just totally extra for free and uh, no extra charge. Um, but I think that question of why we value some jobs, it has to do with certain distortions in our culture and what we value. And, and we don't realize that actually caring for a space and the work that others will do at, when we leave this space to keep it good and uh, prepare it for the next group of people who will be in it, 
I mean, my goodness, if we can't articulate why that's incredibly dignified human work, we are totally missing out on, frankly, what it is to have bodies that make mess and you know, that need cleaning up after, and that that's a human vocation to serve one another in that way. Gosh, if we can't explain that, we really should not be talking about image bearing. Here's what I want to do next, and for the last section of time I have with you. Um, I'm going to try to do this by a little afternoon and leave uh, after one more um, presentation from one of our partners here, leave some time for conversations and questions. Um, but I want to talk a little more about these image bearers by way of answering one of the questions. <laughs> a pretty basic good question. How does the fall of man, um, I actually, my preferred uh, phrase for Genesis 3 is the declaration of independence, but anyway. <laughs> um, how does the fall of man disrupt human flourishing and the system of balance that you've described so beautifully as order and abundance? The Garden of Eden was perfect, but then you get to Genesis 3. Yes, you do. <laughs> and I'm very aware that what I've presented so far and the register that we've talked in so far has been kind of astonishingly, maybe absurdly optimistic uh, about work and, and culture. Uh, and surely many of you have been thinking, well, well, wait a minute, this is not how it actually works in the world as it is. And the way we speak of this in the Christian uh, language, we say it's a fallen world. It is. And I want to get, try to help us get at the nature of that fall and how it has distorted culture and work uh, in this last section. And then finish with our Christian calling in the midst of that. So... The image bearers. We need to think a little more about these image bearers because they have two qualities that I think are going to shape and, and in, in the end misshape the way that they make something of the world. And the, the human task is going to turn from making the world very good to something much darker and much more destructive. Um, but the two qualities that they have actually start out very, very good. There are two things human beings have more than, in greater depth and quantity than any other creature. And I'm going to put them both up here, I think. Um, one is authority. Um, and define authority as the capacity for meaningful action. I'll talk a little more about that. And the other is vulnerability, which I would define as exposure to meaningful risk. Human beings have more authority than any other creature. I think this is um, something we could see from Scripture. They're granted this kind of dominion over the world that no other creature is. But it's also just empirically the case that if you define authority as the capacity for meaningful action, that human beings of all the creatures that inhabit this planet have the greatest scope and ability to meaningfully act in the world. So not just act willy-nilly, not act without purpose. Meaningful action is when you do something, A, it actually has an effect, it makes a difference, and it participates in some, perhaps some story of meaning, uh, some story that gives it a lasting, lasting purpose. Um, I've been given a lot of authority this morning with you. Uh, it's physically embodied in certain ways, so I'm standing, all the rest of you are sitting down, I'm standing up, that's how we signal authority in our culture. In, in Middle Eastern cultures, it's the other way around. Uh, the teacher sits down to teach, he sat down to teach them, but we stand up. I've been given a microphone. Uh, I've been given lighting. I've been, I have this presentation. I've done some preparation, all of which is designed, we hope, such that, uh, that my action is meaningful. And you, also, you all come in, and at some level, you're hoping, boy, I hope that Andy does something meaningful this morning. If I don't, it will be a waste of our time. Uh, and you've granted me this space, this capacity for meaningful action. And the question is, do I uh, rise to that occasion? Well, that's kind of the human story. We're granted tremendous levels of dominion in the world um, and responsibility for the world. I mean, we have this sense of responsibility for other creatures that they do not have for us. Uh, and I think about the squirrels in my backyard who I watch with attention and kind of care. I care about the squirrels. And I've noticed they never watch me. Uh, and they don't, I don't think they care about me. It's not their job to care about me. It's not uncompassionate they don't care. It's just not their little squirrel thing to care about me. So they're running around. I watch them. I'll be distracted from other work just watching my squirrels in my backyard. Not my squirrels. I said my squirrels. They're just the squirrels in my backyard. 
I watch them carrying their little nuts around at this time of year, and I think, squirrel, are you going to remember where you put that nut? I have this sort of sense of worry about their flourishing, right? The squirrel never looks at me, never looks at me with wonder, like, oh, a human, behold, a human. <gasps> you know, no, nope, never says that. And never says, oh, human, how is your retirement savings going? Are you prepared? Are you ready? You know, doesn't, no, not its job. We have this asymmetrical relationship to other creatures that I think is best described in this word authority. And at the same time, we have more vulnerability than any other creature, more exposure to meaningful risk. So when you are vulnerable, you are at risk of losing something that really matters to you. And human beings have far more of this than any other creature, if only because of our awareness of the world we're placed in. Uh, other creatures operate with instinctive sense of risk, but we human beings can imagine our future. We can understand our mortality. We understand how much is at stake in so much of what we do. We find ourselves vulnerable to one another in ways that other creatures don't seem to be, partly because we're so relationally intertwined with one another. Um, the biblical text images this in this interesting way when it says the man and the woman were naked though without shame. And it struck me a few years ago that um, we don't say that about any other creature. Other creatures are born and they have everything they need in terms of their physical kind of accompaniment to make their way in the world, pretty much. So a baby lamb is born. You don't look at the lamb and think, oh, you know, avert your eyes, wait till it puts something on. You know, The baby lamb is, has everything it needs, but a human being is born profoundly vulnerable, born naked, born needy, needy and in need of care for years after we're born, all of us, far longer than any other creature. That baby lamb is out running around a day after birth uh, around the pasture. And we human beings don't even begin to be able to walk until nine months of life, during which time we are totally dependent on other human beings to care for us. And the whole rest of our lives, we are exposed to vulnerability in ways that I just don't think other creatures approach. Does that seem... That ring true. And I, uh, there are two exceptions to this nakedness thing, by the way. There is the naked mole rat. So there's one other creature we call naked. So don't write that down in your white card and it, turn it in. And then there are hairless cats, uh, which you can see on the internet, but I do not recommend you search for it because you will never be able to unsee a hairless cat once you've seen it. But they prove the point. But really, we're the only creature that's vulnerable to our environment in the way you are as a naked human being in Minnesota in December, even on a day like this. But of course, also much more profoundly to be naked is to be relationally vulnerable to another. No other creature has that. And I want to suggest when you have authority and vulnerability together, you have the image of God. I think it might be the case. I don't know if I can prove it to you, but I think it might be the case that you don't have the image of God fully expressed unless you express unless you image the authority of God, God's capacity for meaningful action, his ability to speak, to have it be so, to behold, to say it's good, and God's vulnerability. Now, when I say that word in connection with God, some Christian traditions get very nervous. <laughs> and they say, well, I understand how authority images God because God's sovereign and God rules and reigns. And I agree, God is, is sovereign. And I don't want to give that doctrine up by any means. Uh, but some traditions say, well, but God's not vulnerable, right? God is not exposed to risk the way we are. He's outside of time. He doesn't have uncertainty the way we do. And of course, I agree, God is not in time and exposed to the vicissitudes of creation in the same way the creatures are. But my pushback to my kind of some of my reformed friends and so forth would be, when God created the world and at the climax created these image bearers, male and female, he created them, did God expose himself to risk? <laughs> and I think there's no way around the way God opened himself up to the possibility of loss in the introduction in the world. If he just stopped in the liturgical poem with just those creatures filling the land and the sea and had not created the image bearers, I don't know that there would have been existential risk uh, in the life of God. But out of the outpouring of love of the divine trinity comes this further act of image bearers who are given a degree of freedom that allows them eventually to take God's own son. And, you know, the word vulnerable at root means capacity, capable of being wounded. 
And one of the most astonishing things we human beings, we Christians, sorry, believe about God uh, is that in the presence of the divine trinity is now a resurrected human body that has five wounds in it. That the body of Jesus, as revealed to Thomas and the other disciples, put your hand in my side so that maybe you cannot image God unless you bear both authority and vulnerability. I want to suggest this creates an instability in the experience of the image bearers. Um, because I think we are all drawn to authority in a way we are not drawn to vulnerability, to say the least, right? So I'm going to have to skip a couple things. Oh, sorry. Need a different slide here. Hang on. I want to draw one more chart for you. It's another two by two. Up and to the right, if you have both authority and vulnerability, you have image bearing. That is, this is where true flourishing happens. And if I had more time, we could talk about this. And I could ask, when is a time in your life when you experienced flourishing? When it just felt like your world was full and glorious, and you were developing, you were coming alive. I bet that at that moment, someone was exercising authority in your life and exercising vulnerability, taking a risk. I just bet it's the case. This is good parenting. Good parenting is authority, and man, it's vulnerable. It's good teaching. It's good leadership. We could talk a lot more about how these two go together. And when they go together, it bears the image of God, and the fruitfulness of the world is unveiled and, and enhanced. But most of us do not live up and to the right in this diagram. Instead, we live in one of the other corners. Now, let's think about these briefly. On the one hand, you can have vulnerability without authority. You, as a human being, can end up in a situation where you are very exposed to risk, but have no capacity for meaningful action. And there are many different ways we could name this, but the name I might offer for it is poverty. Because I think, in a way, the deepest way to describe what happens in poverty, it's not really just about a lack of money. It's about being very exposed to risk, but in such a way that you have no capacity to act to meet that risk. I remember tucking my daughter into bed a number of years ago now, and she was maybe eight or nine years old, and instinctively praying, as I think almost every parent prays, for her safety, and just for God to protect her that night and in her life. And here I am, I mean, I live in, in a very safe part of the world, in one of the most prosperous countries in the world. She's covered in this comforting comforter. And I mean, this, my daughter has known safety like most kids have never known. And here I am praying for God to keep her safe. And it, in one of the very rare moments of my life where I felt God directly, quasi-verbally responding to my prayer, I really did just feel imparted to me a communication from God. And God said a couple things. He said, Andy, I hear your prayer for your daughter, Amy. I hear that prayer. And then it was as if the divine voice said, but you have to understand, right now, I am also hearing the prayers of parents all around the world who cannot offer their children anything like the same kind of protection you are able to offer. And you just have to understand, I hear their prayers too. <laughs> there was no sense of rebuke of my prayer, but this, there was a sense of, I want to invite you into my fatherhood after whom all fatherhood is named, Ephesians. And to understand that God hears the prayers of parents who live way down in this corner. Because what greater poverty is there than to know how vulnerable your child is but be able to do nothing to protect them. No capacity for meaningful action to protect them. And that's the case for most human beings on our planet, right? There is this next corner where a few human beings can live, <laughs> which is neither authority nor vulnerability. That is... No real capacity for meaningful action, but also no exposure to meaningful risk. Not a lot at stake. And again, there might be many ways to describe this, but my preferred picture for it, at least at the moment, is a cruise. <laughs> so I have friends who love to go on cruises. Michael Lindsay, who spoke to the Made to Flourish group, is one of my good friends. He loves to go on cruises. My, Michael and I are alike in a lot of ways. I don't understand his love of cruises, but... He tells me that it's what's great about getting on a cruise is you get on the boat and suddenly as it pulls away from shore, you have no responsibilities and everything is provided and you're just able to enjoy, you know, just to let that all go. And I, I get it. 
And I think it's because, really, when you're on a cruise, you are down into the left on this chart. So that was a very expensive animation. I hope you saw it. Uh, um, so what is it to be on a cruise? It's, it's to have no capacity for meaningful action. All right, if you try to go on the bridge of the cruise, and you know, they'll let you visit the bridge, but you can't like run the boat. You have, you know, the, the crew has authority, but you, you don't. And very little risk, assuming it's a normal cruise. Now, you know, there are cruises where the engines give out, you end up spelling out help with your bodies on the upper deck. But let's assume it's a normal cruise. Very little vulnerability, like food just provided, no cooking, no all these choices. It's so delicious. It just sounds wonderful. And it, I think it is wonderful for three days. And it would be hell for three years <laughs> to be locked on a cruise ship and told you must go to the buffet three times a day. There is nothing meaningful you can do. Just watch the sea roll by. Only a very distorted person would say, I want that life, actually. That would be a very boring life because it is a life fundamentally characterized by safety, which is my word down and to the left here. And safety is the condition where I have neither authority nor vulnerability. And I presented this uh, chart to a group of church leaders in, in Haiti in May. And we got to this corner and we were talking about this combination of authority and vulnerability and they were with me until we got to this corner and, and one uh, of the young women leaders raised her hand and she said, no one gets to live down there. Like there's no, no one lives down there where, where you have no risk and no authority. And I said, well, that's true in Haiti. The moment you walk out your door, you're at risk, no matter who you are in Haiti. But I said, but in my country, in conditions of incredible affluence, we can actually choose to live down and to the left. If you have enough money and enough power and a big enough military patrolling the world on your behalf. And if you're lucky enough, you can withdraw, move into a gated community. Maybe, you, maybe at one time in your life, you exercised a lot of authority and vulnerability and, and did really well in business, let's say. You can cash out and move into a setting where you will never again have to act and never again have to risk. And you can do that at the macro scale if you're really lucky and fortunate, but you can also do it every day through the mediums of entertainment, television, uh, withdrawing into these little screens that give us this kind of very safe window on the world in some ways, that don't have all the risk of embodiment, all the risk of the people we're called to be connected with. And actually, a lot of us in affluent North America can live down into the left here. And then there's one more corner, and it's actually the key to the whole thing. And that's authority without vulnerability, which sounds appealing, I think. Like, oh, that doesn't sound so bad. And I think that authority without vulnerability is the basic promise of idolatry. So what every idol promises is authority without vulnerability. And every idol does this by sort of articulating, I think, two promises. One is you shall be like God. And the second is, you shall not surely die. These are, of course, the two promises offered by the serpent on behalf of the fruit, but I think they are the fundamental logic of everything that human beings turn their worship to and say, if I worship this, I will get what I really want, which is, I want to be like God, all the authority you can imagine. And I do not want the dependence and vulnerability of being a mortal creature depending on God for my life. And the serpent says, God told you you're dependent, but actually if you eat this fruit, you'll be independent of God. You shall not surely die. Authority without vulnerability. And there's these two things that in fact have to go together to bear the image. In our experience as human beings, from the very first moment it seems, had this instability and we, we were a lot more sure that having authority was being like God than that having vulnerability was being like God. And so when the, the servant comes along and whispers, actually, you can have one without the other, we think, that sounds like the ticket. So one illustration that I think maybe most vividly illustrates how this works um, is, uh, is this very common human experience. You walk into a room full of people you don't know like I did this morning, <laughs> and like many of you did coming in here, and it's a vulnerable experience. 
for most of us. There are a few of you who are like 100% extroverts and you walked in and you were like, oh, awesome, 150 friends I haven't met yet, where do I start, right? That's not how most of us felt walking in, even the relatively extroverted among us. It's vulnerable uh, to walk into a room of people you don't know. But what if I could hand you something that, uh, not here at Bethel probably, but uh, in other contexts, well, all right, let's be more honest. First time you see this, it'll probably look more like this. Uh, so if I could hand you something in that slightly awkward but also exciting new social situation that as you sipped it, that sense of vulnerability would start to ebb away and a sense of godlike authority would begin to descend <laughs> upon you. You'd become funnier. Other people would become better looking. You'd be like, hey, this is not so bad. This, part, this party is going great, right? And as you consume that alcohol in the social context that our culture gives to it, you start to feel like, hey, I have lots of capacity for meaningful action, and I'm no longer exposed to meaningful risk. And the moment you use alcohol to manage your vulnerability in a social situation like that, you've gone from treating it as a very good part of God's world, potentially, to an idol that says you do not have to live under the conditions of authority plus vulnerability. There's a way to have one without the other. And the amazing thing about idols is they work at first. At first, they work. And these things that we turn to to relieve us of our vulnerability and to exaggerate and enhance our authority actually initially deliver. And the only problem is they don't keep working, at least not the same effectiveness. So the next party you go to, it may take two drinks to get that sense of elevation. And eventually, this thing that promised you authority without vulnerability, over time, actually, this is the logic of idolatry, the pattern of idolatry, begins to deliver less and less authority, and it actually exposes you to greater and greater vulnerability until eventually the thing that promised you authority without vulnerability now exposes you to vulnerability without authority. And that is, of course, what it is to be in the throes of addiction, in the depths of intoxication. You are now unbelievably vulnerable, and you've lost, literally, your capacity for meaningful action. You can't speak or move confidently in the world. And I want to suggest that the human story is the story of a quest for that thing we could order our lives around that would relieve us of the calling of the image bearer. Because an idol is a substitute image. And we think, if I can displace the job of imaging God from me with all my vulnerability onto this thing that promises me authority without vulnerability, then I will have the life that I want. And then the tragedy of the human story is the discovery every time that thing that promised me authority without vulnerability, in fact, is delivering the exact opposite. So anything can become an idol. And actually, I'd like us to think about this for a few moments um, with our neighbors. So here's a question for you. What idols, that is, created things that promise authority without vulnerability, have the most power around you, where you live, where you work, where people that you lead and serve uh, live and work? What is it that people are turning to to enhance their sense of meaningful action and minimize their exposure to meaningful risk. And let's think about it, especially in the world of the world outside the church. There's plenty of idols inside of Christianity proper, uh, but let's think about kind of the world that our folks are working in. What are they tempted to turn to to get authority without vulnerability? So why don't you turn to a neighbor and think about that just for a couple of minutes together.
All right, about one more minute. Finish that thought. So let's hear a few examples. What around us, especially in the world of, of work and all its varieties, tends to promise authority without vulnerability? Yes. The first thing we discussed was financial stability on an individual level or at the organizational level, even in our churches and, and um, other organizations of that sort. Yes. So money promises us capacity for meaningful action because money is liquid power. It's power that you can save up, store, and, uh, and then use to act at other times. And and we also think, if I have money, I'll be insulated from risk. And so while money is good, because uh, money properly used and flowing through an economy enables both authority and meaningful risk in good ways, when it turns into an idol, we start to look to financial stability as the, that sine qua non condition in which if I don't have this, I won't be able to flourish, which is actually not, it's a, it's a lie. And the way you always know an idol is you can never have enough of an idol. <laughs> And so you start, to pursuing, you start pursuing financial stability and you find you'll never be stable enough to feel like you've been freed from the risk, if it's your idol. Yes. Yes. Uh, we talked about social media, uh -huh. how that is, gives everybody the authority of a platform, ah. but reduces the vulnerability of actually talking to somebody face-to-face. -face. <laughs> exactly. So it gives you this incredible ability to broadcast your thoughts, opinions, outrage, whatever, to the world. But, but really, uh, unless it's combined with embodied encounter, becomes this retreat from actual engagement with actual human beings who might push back in some way. Absolutely. And, of course, leads to the most cowardly invention of the human species, which is the breakup by text message, right? I mean, talk about authority without vulnerability. Like, okay, we're done, you know, but I don't have to tell you that. I don't have to call you up even, just send a little bit, or just change your status on Facebook, you know. <laughs> it's complicated, yes. Uh, in academic circles, it could be expertise. Ah, yes. So we, t the, and do you notice, everything we're on the list is a good thing, even a very good thing, a part of human culture. But when used to insulate yourself from risk and to elevate your authority, can become quite idolatrous, quite distorting of relationships. Yeah. Any more? I was thinking about teenage rebellion. Oh, sorry, I'm, I'm missing That's where this, the speaker is. Oh, yes, okay. All right. So teenage rebellion, yeah, is, a, is an act of kind of distancing yourself from the vulnerability of being in a family system while trying to take on responsibility, yeah. Uh, this will sound strange, but uh, I've done it myself and I've seen others do it. Uh, actually using your vulnerability to put up walls. So for some examples, uh, the opposite of what someone just said, using financial instability to no one expects anything from you if you're in constant financial crisis. Um, when I was a parent of small children, I would use the small children to avoid the awkwardness of interactions I didn't like. So get distracted by the small children. Um, I've even used, uh, shamefully, uh, illness to uh, avoid certain responsibilities. So actually use the, manipulating the vulnerability itself to wow. insulate. Wow, so we can even find in our, in what seem like weaknesses can become things we turn to insulate us from other people, to validate us. Uh, compel other people to respond to us in some way or to control how they respond to us. Wow, that's very powerful. Could think a lot more about that. Yes. We talked about social media, but how many, <laughs> how many likes on Facebook? You know, I oh, mean, yeah. how many likes on your Instagram? How many Twitter favorites? Um, and then just how many people are coming to the new 
whatever it is we're trying to do at our church. You know, why are yes. they all going, you know, to BSF and not our really cool discipleship? <laughs> Did I say that yes. out loud? And, but, it, you know, but the reality is it's in smaller communities that we grow and we learn to know each other. And, and so why are we so obsessed with size? But we right. are. So counting, we feel like if I can count it and if it's growing, that's what I'm aiming at. Uh, and I don't deny, I, I, I would love, I seek for things to grow and flourish. But when it becomes an idol, it becomes this way of insulating ourselves from the risk that maybe we don't know everything we need to know about serving people, or maybe we're missing something. Or, yeah, and we, it, becomes, it can become its own god, very consuming. One or two more? Yes? Uh, not to bring down the vibe entirely, but with the internet lately, pornography has become so easily accessible and it gives you such incredible feelings of authority over those relationships without any, 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 any risk for injury or vulnerability in your isolated room or whatever. And it exactly. is prevalent. And I've spoken with many, many people about their struggles with it. Exactly. Um, and I think that's one of the most heartbreaking and painful and widespread idols um, going on, at least in my generation. Absolutely. Uh, 24, but Absolutely. yeah, it's rampant. In certain respects, what is the greatest meaningful action you can engage in? It is to know another. And sexual union is the deepest, is a deepest form of knowledge, maybe not the only deep form. It's described as knowledge in the Bible, to know another. That's the authority for which we're made as relational beings. And when that knowledge is, is grasped from the world with no risk, because the other thing that sexual union is, is unbelievably vulnerable, uh, unbelievably risky, done naked usually. And when you can have all that authority with none of that vulnerability, that is an unbelievably powerful idol. Of course, the logic of idols, though, is that initial hit of, wow, that was everything I wanted with nothing that I feared, actually ends up robbing you of the capacity for meaningful action and without getting too graphic, literally can rob you of the capacity for actual consummation of sexual union in person with another person with a body uh, because of desensitization. And, and it exposes you and many others to more and more vulnerability. It's, it's su such the logic of idolatry played out in our uh, sexualized world. And who could have predicted, like this is where the sexual revolution would take us, to all these isolated experiences of idolatrous sex. Anyone could have predicted it if you understood the logic of idols. <laughs> That's how they work. All right, one more, and then we'll, I want to give you a few final thoughts. I was just thinking about, uh, about culture and uh, culture of uh, even, even our experience. Um, it could be how we grew up, the specific neighborhood in which we grew up, yes. um, and how we insulate our, ourselves. I mean, uh, I'll be honest, uh -huh. as, a, as a transplant to Minnesota, this is one area where people who grew up with certain people tend to stick with that ah. same group of people ah. throughout their entire yeah. life. And it can yeah. be very difficult to break into relationships. <laughs> so. Someone else has, knows of what you speak. <laughs> I want to put one more word in this upper left corner because it's really important that it be said and named, and that's injustice. Because injustice is just a social system in which a few people have authority without vulnerability. And it's always at the expense of other people living with vulnerability without authority. And so there's actually two things in Scripture that God has said to hate over and over, and two things the prophets confront over and over. The prophets confront idolatry, which is things or patterns of cultural activity that we put our trust in to give us authority and vulnerability. And the other thing the prophets indict the nations of the world for, the cultures of the world, is that they have now become environments of injustice where people, a few people, occupy this upper left quadrant at the expense of many others ending up down and to the right. And you notice in this version of this little chart, I've taken away the upper right corner because in a way I would say, none of us has ever actually met an image bearer. We've never actually met a human being who fully embodied authority and fully embodied vulnerability because only one such human being of all our fallen race has ever lived. 
And Jesus of Nazareth, he taught with authority. He acted with authority. When he said, you will do this until I return, we're still doing it, waiting for his return. That's authority. Wow. And he exposed himself completely to vulnerability. The um, tradition of Western art doesn't like to represent it quite directly, but we know the way the Romans crucified their victims was naked. And so the maker of the world ends up naked on the cross, impaled on the cross, five wounds, in a, in a naked, vulnerable human body. He was all authority and all vulnerability, and he's the only one who's ever lived that life fully. And think about the flourishing that has come from that life. <laughs> None of us have ever even seen it. Instead, we have a world where everybody lives in one of these other corners. The vast majority, really, of our neighbors today living in poverty, some of us being able to opt out into safety, some of us benefiting for the moment from idolatry and injustice. I have come up right to the end of the time that I was given. I'm trying to decide what to do. I feel like I should take two more minutes and, and give you some hope in this and then take a short break to hear from Brian and then we'll have a little bit of conversation. So, uh, so much more I could say and probably should say. Maybe I'll just point out this. The human story was meant to go from safety to image bearing. This is actually the story of every human life. Every human life starts out with little capacity for action, and if it's a healthy beginning, little exposure, meaningful risk. It was meant to move into more and more authority and more and more vulnerability. Start out in a garden, end up in a city, start out as a baby, end up as a flourishing human being who acts and takes risks in the world. But the human story now is this oscillation between idolatry and injustice on the one hand and poverty on the other. And so most human beings, with the exception of those who can opt out and live in safety, oscillate between these two things. I could say more about that. But let me end my kind of prepared remarks with this word. It seems to me that you can then sum up our vocation in the world with two phrases, bearing the image and restoring the image. So we are here to bear the image. We're here to do the six-day work of recapitulating creation everywhere we go, ordering and finding abundance. But we are also here to do what I might call the sixth-day work, the work of the sixth day. That's the day on which Jesus was crucified, right? The last day before the Sabbath. And the sixth-day work is the work of bearing and attending to all the vulnerability that idolatry and injustice have brought into our world, suffering it, and somehow, in the power of the Spirit, overcoming it with life. So that the Christian story is both about simply the way our work every day repeats God's creation, but it's also about the way our work might be part of God's reconciliation and restoration of his broken image bearers. And so let me just give you one picture of what that can look like. And we'll hear from Brian, and then we'll have a little bit of time to talk. And it's not a little ugly slide that I put in as a placeholder. It's a bed. Children um, with profound disabilities have all kinds of needs, and one of them is a safe place to sleep. Uh, night is the most vulnerable time for human beings. All of us, eight-ish hours a night, render ourselves unconscious, at risk, limp. But a child with special needs has all kinds of additional layers that happen in the, through the night. Um, for my niece, Angela, among the many things were digestive problems that caused her to cough up things from her digestive system, but the risk of aspirating back into her lungs, or what she'd coughed up. And, there had to be someone with her at every moment to attend to those little sounds of her breathing, her coughing, to make sure that at every moment she was kept safe. And then she had very little motor control, and so she could, she could roll out of bed, any number of things could happen. And so children in this situation need, uh, and then they get heavy. So Angela at 11 was uh, five feet in height and, I don't know, 80 pounds. That's a heavy human being who cannot locomote, can't get themselves to the bath, to the toilet. Um, and so, there's a man named George, who's an Amish carpenter, who founded a company called Beds by George. And Beds by George makes customized, handmade 
wooden, beautiful beds that accommodate the needs of vulnerable human beings, children with disabilities. And one of them, sorry, it's going to be very hard to recount this without some level of emotion, but one of them is in a special bedroom uh, created in, in my sister's home for her, her daughter, uh, Angela. And this bed looked a lot like this. It has windows so the caregivers can see in, but it can be raised so that the child is protected. Inside is a hospital bed that can articulate, lift the child up so that certain kinds of care can be provided. Angela's bed had a pass-through for various kinds of cords and inter intravenous things. And it's all custom designed based on the needs of any given family with special needs. And then there are these amazing philanthropic communities that gather around and make it possible for families to afford these beautiful and very expensive uh, pieces of equipment that a third or half of the day provide for the flourishing of a child with vulnerability and their family and their caregivers. And I looked at this bed in my sister's home and I thought, that's good work. That is good work to make something that is so beautiful in, in environments where there's a lot of messy, ugly stuff that goes on with a vulnerable, broken human body like that. But to have this beautiful bed in that room and to have it technically adapted to all we know about how to care for the needs of children in these situations. Um, and it provided, just so you see her, for this baby who then grew into this little infant, able to hold herself up, who then grew into a pretty good-sized girl and who was capable of flourishing on a sunny day outside with something to put in her mouth because that's the main way trisomy kids can interact with the world is orally. With the wind in her hair and surrounded just outside the frame with people who are attending at every moment to her vulnerability and her needs. Angela was able to be an image bearer of God. And I tell you, being at that funeral yesterday and seeing the flourishing that emanated out from this family managing that vulnerability, if you had ears to hear and a heart to attend, it could cure you of the lie of idolatry, which is that vulnerability is the problem we're trying to solve. Because out of Angela's profound vulnerability and my sisters and brother-in-law and the many who cared for her came actually authority and vulnerability medical authority with vulnerability, uh, family authority with vulnerability, the creation of things like that bed. This is our work in the world. It's to go everywhere that's broken by this human decision to opt out of image bearing and restore the image. That's good work. That's what we could do. That's what our Christian community could do. And that would lead to the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Thank you all so much for your time and attention today. Thank you. Thank you. Brian, come, sir.